Welcome, Bouncer Backers, to this week's episode of Bouncing Back Stronger, the podcast where we explore the incredible power of resilience, personal growth, and triumph over adversity. I'm your host, Sarah Jane Vasquez, and I'm thrilled to embark on this transformative journey with you. Whether you're seeking inspiration, guidance, or simply reminded that you're not alone on your journey, Bouncing Back Stronger is here to support and empower you. We believe that every setback is an opportunity for a comeback, and every challenge is a chance for growth. Let's go. Welcome back to another episode of Bouncing Back Stronger. In today's instalment, we're joined by Angela Kerwin, a talented writer and the host of Hyperactive, Impulsive, Inattentive Living. Angela is here to share her journey of receiving a formal ADHD diagnosis in adulthood. She will discuss her lack of surprise upon her diagnosis, her insatiable need for constant stimulation, her inclination towards pushing boundaries, and her deep appreciation for therapy. Angela walks us through her newfound understanding of her behaviours and how she manages her ADHD to lead a fulfilling life, and that she does. Stay with us now for this insightful conversation. Angela Kerwin, welcome to Bouncing Back Stronger. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for joining us. Honestly, I'm really excited about this episode. You're a podcaster yourself. You're also a successful writer. And you're also someone who has fairly recently been diagnosed with ADHD. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. I'm going to talk about all of this in our episode today. I particularly relate to the ADHD and as we had an intro call, didn't we? So I do relate to it somewhat because I said I saw so much of me within what you were saying in our intro call. So I'm really excited to get this started. Okay, so Angela, I'm currently speaking to you in your car and you're residing in France at the moment. Yes, it's a bit like unusual. I appreciate that. But I'm in France at the moment. There was a big storm yesterday. The Wi-Fi is all a bit dodgy. So I thought this was a really good sound booth for the podcast. I think it's perfect. Yeah, I, I hope it works. I hope it works out. It will. You sound great. Very resourceful. Note to self in future. <laughs> Definitely. Oh, so I guess, Angela, let's start for you from, you know, from, I guess from the beginning, really. You're obviously, you're originally from England. Um, you're currently in France at the moment, but you've just bought a house in Italy. Yes. Yeah. So, yeah, originally from Manchester, I lived in Manchester till I was 21, then down in Bristol, then London. And I I left the UK when I was 28 mm. because I was working in prison as a social worker and it was just super, super stressful. I got really burnt out and decided that's it. I'm leaving. So I just went off to France for the winter. I thought I'll go skiing for six months and then I'll go back to the UK and be a social worker again. Mm. And I never went back. I loved it. I stayed out. So I lived in France for a bit, lived in Austria, then Slovenia, and finally, finally settled in Italy. Wonderful. And were you a skier anyway, Angela? Did you always skied? Yeah. Well, since I was about 20, I'd been snowboarding and skiing a little bit. So yeah, I'd, I knew that I loved it. I knew that I really enjoyed it and I loved being in the mountains. So that was kind of the passion that I really wanted to follow. And it just felt so different from 
a normal job. I just thought this is going to be great fun for six months. Just go and run away to the mountains. Yeah. And I'll never leave. And I don't blame you. Social care. And then what took you into working within prisons? With social care. So I was a young carer for my grandma. My grandma had dementia. So from about the age of 12, me, my mum, my sister were taking on more and more responsibility looking after my grandma. And I realised that without without a family around you, without people like advocating for you in the social care system, it's just so difficult to navigate. Mm. And when I turned 16 and started looking for jobs and, you know, part-time jobs whilst I was still at college, all my skills were with people. Mm. So I just kind of fell into it, really. I don't think I chose social care. I think I just thought, oh, I'm quite good working with old people I can deal with. Even like the the kind of physical care, like I, I don't get faith having to, you know, wipe people's bums and mm. and feed people. So I had jobs working with people who were very severely disabled, who couldn't feed themselves. And that was my job. Or I worked with old people, elderly people who, you know, really needed intensive domiciliary care. And it didn't phase me. I was quite good at it. So I went and trained Not as a... So- really. I think it takes a particular type of person to do that you know, to yeah. you know, really sort of like the physical aspect. Yeah. I think with my grandma, I just, I just knew the services weren't there that could look after her to any sort of decent level. And, you know, I, I love the NHS. I think it's brilliant. And I think it's awful that we're slashing and burning the funding, but, you know, a care worker coming in for 20 minutes at lunchtime to feed my grand, that that's not enough. She wouldn't get enough nutrition and she needed the family to come and do it for her. And it I don't know if it was just like in my family, but it it felt that that was just what you do. You you come and do that and you look after people in your family. However, kind of emotionally difficult that is, that's just what you do. But yeah, I always thought I'd go into social work working with old people. I always assume that's what I'd do. And when I actually started my official training, so when I started, I did my master's in social work, my first placement was in a community team that worked with people with severe mental health issues and usually there was lots of substance misuse in there too and I just fell in love with doing that side of the job and it's that that led me into being full-time in prison because unfortunately we incarcerate people for a lot of problems that are like substance misuse problems or that are mental health problems and if they were dealt with properly people wouldn't end up in prison and they're the people I ended up working with, particularly very angry men. I really, really enjoy working with very angry men. I think I'm quite good at it. <laughs> so what prison were you in and what level of like, you know, security was it? Or what type of as you said, they probably needed more rehabilitation and, you know, kind of specialized mental health care rather than just yeah. being put in a prison cell. But they were. And thankfully, they have people like you to support them. But what prison was it? And and yeah, what was the... the- so, I, so the lawyers, when I, so I wrote a book about this and the lawyers won't let me say which exact prisons they were. Mm-hmm. But I worked in, I worked in a few What's different called? ones. It's called Criminal, How Our Prisons Are Failing Us All. Wow. So yeah, so I'm not allowed to say, but if you come from, like, if you come from Liverpool or Manchester or London, the big Victorian ones that you see, like your HMP Liverpool, HMP Strangeways, HMP Pentonville, yeah. it was it was those kind of prisons that I worked in. And these kind of prisons, we call them, they're called Cat B Locals, which makes them sound like not very 
serious prisons. But these are kind of, you've got anything, murderers, rapists, sex offenders, all the way down to people who are in for six weeks for shoplifting. And these are the prisons where everyone comes straight from court or everyone comes straight from, yeah, straight straight from the court. They might be on remand, they might not be sentenced yet, and they just take everyone from the local area. Wow. So that kind of place. but Quite a mixture as well. Yeah, 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 yeah. So because I specialised, originally when I went in, I specialised in substance misuse, I would often be on the detox unit. I'd do a lot of my work on there. And that would be with people who were in for relatively low-level offending, just repeat, repeat, kind of like shoplifting, repeat theft, these things that are acquisitive crimes to get money to fund your addiction. Yeah, yeah. But I did go on to do different types of groups with different people in the prison. So I ran anger management groups with more long-term offenders. We did some activities with the younger the younger prisoners who are, we say, like affiliated with gang lifestyle, I suppose, gang culture. No one really wants to say they're in a gang. So you've got to, you've got to sell that in a slightly different way. Mm-hmm. And I ended up just working with the group of people who just, for whatever reason, cause the most trouble in the prison. So the people who are constantly fighting and being violent towards staff and other prisoners, or the people who are constantly being really, really like damaging towards themselves, they're self-injuring a lot and this kind of thing. So that's who I ended up working. Um, I can imagine that that can be quite tough because of the nature of, you know, the clients that you, you know, the, the prisoners that you're working with, you know, if they're angry, calming them down, you know, the system, self-harm. There's a lot perhaps that you could take home with you. Yeah, yeah. I I wasn't in uniform, which makes it a lot easier. I was classed as like a civilian in prison, which means if you're a woman and a civilian, you're already going to get a much easier ride. So a lot of that anger is not directed at you. Is that and I think they didn't see you as an authoritative figure as such? Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm not the prison. I'm, yeah. I'm there to help. And it's a really different role. So that makes life a lot easier. Mm-hmm. And I think especially when I worked on the substance misuse wings, mm-hmm. and it's a similar group of people coming and going, coming and going, mm-hmm. they get to know you and they know if you're genuine. They know if you say you're going to do what you say you're going to do. I think the thing I found hardest was the thing that ultimately saw me burn out and leave is the system. I think the system itself is designed to debilitate, not to rehabilitate. And however much I tried for an individual, if the system itself is never gonna is never gonna help people from to change their lives, then what are we doing? What's the point? And I think that's what you really think got your job to me. Was a end. little bit worth worthless in a sense that you were doing all this hard work, but then they were just going to hit a brick wall anyway. Is that is that what you mean? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, you could do such amazing work with people in prison, but ultimately, if someone's released homeless and they're released and they've got nothing, they've not got any money coming in, they've not got, you know, they're, they're released with a with a bus ticket for the day and forty quid in their pocket, then the system itself is just designed for people to come back into prison and that really really got me down I think in the end and I felt like I was just a bit of a sticking plaster when actually it's like a sticking plaster on this just like huge system that was just crumbling and doesn't work so yeah see that yeah I could imagine so 
you decided then after, you know, after, after that, that you're going to leave, you came, came out of there. Yeah. Did you write your book straight away or is it something that you did a bit later? No, I, um, I never planned to like write and publish a book about this. I just have always written. I always write a journal. It's kind of the way I like get my thoughts out my head and figure out what's going on for me. Which is a really good idea. And I recommend it to all of my clients to journal, you know, and I do it myself every evening. Yeah. Because it's just so powerful and to get your thoughts down on the paper. Yeah, absolutely. And this is, I can't make sense of what's going on in my head if it's just in my head. And this is where, I know I'm skipping loads forward here, but this is where therapy is amazing as well. Because what I did in prison with the guys, the majority of my work, I ran group therapy sessions where we would sit every day and talk about our feelings and talk about our lives and be really honest. And you don't know what you're thinking. We had this catchphrase where it'd be like, I learn what I feel when I hear what I say. And that's so, so true. I I learn what I feel when I hear what I say. (laughs) I've never heard yeah. that before. Right. I know it's lovely, isn't it? One of the one of the crims taught it me. And that's so true for me that until like even now talking to you, you can hear me sometimes kind of stop as I'm speaking because yeah. I'm forming the ideas as I speak. I'm figuring out what I mean. And writing does that for me and therapy, which I never had when I worked in prison. Even though I told everyone to come to my therapy groups, I didn't think it was for me. But yeah, that's been a lifesaver for me. And well, so I think as well, I mean, I used to work in a group setting and work with groups in in substance abuse. And I remember thinking that, you know, it's another saying, but me helping you is you helping me. And it's the same in my, even in my client relationships in my therapy room, you know, you're helping me actually by me helping you. There's there's always that two-way, that two-way street going on. Yeah, absolutely. But yeah, where was, this is my ADHD now, bring me back on track. So yeah, I didn't write the book immediately. I'd kind of like jokingly said to the the guys in my in my group in prison, like, oh, I'm gonna write I'm gonna write a self help book based on everything you guys teach me. I'm gonna steal all your ideas and make loads of money from it. And it was kind of, <laughs> you know, a joke that I was gonna steal all their wisdom from these groups. Yeah. So I'd, I'd you know just journal these ideas down. But it was probably it was eighteen months later that I wrote the book, where suddenly I've figured out what I wanted to say mm-hmm. and just got it down in like three months. And I think part of that was space, time and distance away from it. And part That's of that it. was, yeah, yeah, it was, it was kind of a feeling of, okay, I'm, it's not so raw now. I'm not just like emotionally reacting to it. Mm-hmm. And I was also at a much like happier place in my life. And I was living in Slovenia that summer. Slovenia is like my favorite place in the world. And be- met my boy. It go honestly, I think it's the best, best country I'd in Europe. It. It's just not somewhere you think of going though, is it? Oh no. Everyone, I'm just popping off to Slovenia. Oh no, it's beautiful. Wow. And I, yeah, I was dead happy. Met my boyfriend who I'm with now and just wrote. And it took me about, I'd say like twelve weeks to get eighty thousand words done. Amazing. And then I was like, Oh wow, I've written a book. Yeah. And then I started showing it to people. People liked it. But it was never with the intention of publishing a book. I just did it because I love writing amazing yeah fantastic so that's called criminal how our prisons are failing us all exactly so yeah, yeah. Gave you a bug then, didn't Angela you got a bug you thought oh, okay I've written a book which must have been huge because I'd love to write a book and you've touched on something there where you said just didn't really know 
quite what to write or it came to you. It's like, right, okay, I'm ready. I'm going to write this now. And perhaps once you've done one, once you've just got out your system, maybe get the book. And I think, you know, that's what spurred on your, shall we say, second idea, perhaps. Yeah. So I've done that. That was all ticking along nicely. And I suddenly decided, right, I I love writing books. This is what I enjoy doing. Mm -hmm. But I had nothing to write about. I was like, what can I do? What can I write about? And I had some, I had some like big, like social justice ideas that are kind of ticking along still in the background now. There's some like real big meaty subjects I wanted to write about. But just to kind of keep myself in that writing habit of writing every day, I decided, this was about 18 months ago, I decided I was going to, I was going to reinvent myself. I was feeling quite unhappy with who I was. And it's weird to say that because I've just said, oh, I was in a happy place in my life. Mm. And I think like circumstantially, I was happy. Do you know what I mean? Like day-to-day life was great. But I think internally, I was like, I just don't like myself. I don't think I'm the best version of myself. I'll be happy when I have reinvented myself into this. And it's always that I'll be happy when I do da da yeah. I'll be happy when I da da da. I'll be happy when I make this money. I'll be happy when I move house. Yeah. And yeah. unless you're, well, and I know it sounds cliched, but unless you're happy within you, you're always going to take that head. Absolutely. And, and that's what I found. I think I was, I was kind of like getting closer to happiness. I was like, oh, I've met the person that I really like. I'm living in the place I really like. I'm, I'm now doing a job that's awesome. I get to be a writer. Mm. And I was like, I'm so close. And yet internally, like, I'm not happy. Mm-hmm. So this reinvention I really wanted to try, I thought I was going to do like a New Year's resolution really intensely every month for a year. And I was going to write about it. In my mind, I genuinely thought at the end of that, like I would reach this place of like peace and tranquility. I'd have like an amazing six pack. I would be really zen. I would be fluent in Italian. Just everything would click into place. And I would suddenly be this really calm, cool woman that I have like never, ever been. Now this is and, interesting. Well, yeah. I think this is where the link certainly goes with the ADHD, which we'll talk about in a moment. But that idea that you said, I'm going to write about New Year's resolutions, but it's not just a New Year's resolution. You were going extreme on the New Year's resolutions, weren't you? So, you yeah. know, for example. Uh, oh, yeah, I am. Um, so what? So my, I, I suppose the one that's like now at the start of this hilarious book is that I decided I was going to become like, I'm going to get actually really good at skiing. So I can ski all right. I've been doing it for a few years now, living in the mountains. But I was like, no, I'm not good enough. So I'm going to become like a brilliant, amazing off-piste skier. And I managed to break my leg in 17 places right at the start of this like journey of reinvention. What? So in the manu- Get down the slope. No, 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 no. I had to be helicopters off the mountain. So I went, because I've, I've done big skiing injuries before. Yeah. So I went over, heard a massive snap. But I was like, I'm really worried about my knees because I've done a knee injury before and that's just, that just ruins your life for a very long time. Yeah. So I was laying on the slope. I was like, my knee's okay. My knee's okay. That's fine. And then I turned around to my friend and was like, oh, it hurts down near my ankle. And we looked at each other and we, you can't break your ankle in ski boots. Like it's not, it, it's not possible. You break, you hurt your knees in ski boots. Yeah. Yeah. And I was like, I've not done anything. Have I? And he was like, no, you're fine. You're fine. So I was like, right. I'm just going to lie here, then I'm going to ski down or I'm going to like hobble down and I'll just get the lift back down. It's fine. 
And the moment I tried to move, it was like 12 out of 10 on the pain scale. Oh uh, I have never, ever been in that much pain in my whole life. But And the mountain rescue came and got me and I was trying to check on my phone whether I'd bothered getting my winter insurance that year because I was like, this is a six grand helicopter if I've not. So I'm on my like online banking app looking for the, looking for the insurance. On the top of a mountain. Yeah. And I couldn't find the document. So I was like, don't worry, just take me, just put me on the back of a skidoo, take me down to the ski lift and I'll be fine. I'll go to the clinic in town. Mm-hmm. And they were just like, you're an idiot. Like that's not going to happen. And when they tried to move me, I realized like, even if I do have to spend six grand on this helicopter, there's no other way off the mountain. Yeah. Luckily, my my ADHD brain had some somehow got myself my winter insurance sorted, so it was fine. That's good. Yeah, so that ended up... Had a, so was that in the top of your leg and your bottom of your leg? No, it's both the bones in the bottom. So the tibia and fibula, but they call it like a green stick injury. So if your bones are a bit... I don't know if your bones are a bit stretchy, like a new branch on a tree, like the green uh-huh. branches. It kind of twists and breaks in like 17 different places. So, so I've got, what have I got now? Two metal plates and I think 17 pins in my leg now. Wow. Like a little Wolverine. Wow. Yeah. So it's <laughs> obviously put an end at that particular time to the extreme sports yeah. and then perhaps your book, that particular book. Well, no, I just thought I could carry on doing it. So I the day I got out of hospital, got myself a personal trainer, learned how to do chair cardio. I was doing like one-legged press-ups. I was still thinking that this was possible. You're amazing, aren't you? I'm not going to give up. Oh, no, I'm an idiot. You're not to stop me. I will do it. Yeah. Weirdly, it, it's such a weird thing because, because I've had big ski accidents before and they've got me really depressed when I can't use sport as an outlet. And this time when I was getting helicoptered off the mountain, I really had a chat with myself about you are not going to like let this get you down. You're going to be the happiest person ever with a broken leg. I didn't really even tell many people that I'd done it because I didn't want people to feel sorry for me. Mm-hmm. And I'm really kind of focused in on these goals because I thought if I stay focused on these goals, I can't, my mental health can't go off the radar. It can't take a dip. And actually I was really happy with my broken leg I know that sounds so weird but I just told myself like you have to be happy because otherwise this will just descend into absolute depression so you have to positive yeah. out of the situation yeah, yeah yeah and I had to be really structured with myself so every day then it was like okay you do one hour of Italian every day you do one hour with your personal trainer every day you do one hour writing every day I had to feel like those months weren't going to be wasted. Yeah. So I just made myself like really structured time. And a lot of this. And I think, there, yeah, well, I'm so all or nothing yeah. that I can't do things by hard. If you say to me like, oh, just be the kind of person who has two glasses of wine with your dinner. I can't do it. I'd rather just not drink yeah. because otherwise I'll have like two bottles. Yeah. So if, if I give myself really strict rules, mm-hmm. like if there are really strict rules, like, no, you will do this thing. I can do it. If I give myself any like free reign, then that's when it goes. Yeah. All. Yeah. I relate to that so much, Angie, honestly. Yeah. That kind yeah. of all or nothing in everything, you know. Yeah. You, I also broke my foot and my wrist. I'm still waiting for, a, for an operation on my wrist. But <laughs> my, foot's, my foot's actually okay now. But, you know, I was as, exactly the same as you. It's like, it's not going to stop me from exercising. 
you know, so I had my mat out, I had YouTube on, what exercises can I do for my upper body? You know, trying to see the ball. The only thing is with that though, is it got so hot, the foot, you know, because I had the brace on, I had to keep that on so I could actually just move. But I got so hot and I got so sweaty that it's just so uncomfortable. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But I, I did more exercise when I had the cast on my leg. So I wasn't allowed to bear any weight on my leg for or 16 weeks, I think, in the end. It got to 16 weeks. I wasn't allowed any, not even like weight bearing at all. That's a long time, but, isn't it? Yeah. But then when the crutches came off and it was like, okay, you you feel your body, you go and do what you want in the gym. I think that's when my mental health really dipped because I, I knew I could get through this real difficult period. But then when life started to return to normal and I was still on this quest of reinvention, that's when I started to fall apart a little bit I think okay and so we conclude part one of our conversation with Angie we've gained remarkable insights into her journey Angie's fearless exploration of life's extremes resonates deeply and her emphasis on structuring our days and weeks does hit home she leaves us with a powerful reflection on our ongoing quest for reinvention a theme that takes an intriguing twist as we step into part two so you must join us next week as we continue the story, where we'll uncover how her pursuit of reinvention led to unexpected challenges. I'll see you then. And that's a wrap for this episode of Bouncing Back Stronger. Thank you for joining me today. I hope you found inspiration and valuable insights to help you bounce back stronger in your own life. I'd love to hear from you, so please feel free to share your thoughts insights or personal stories of resilience by reaching out to me via email or my social media channels in the show notes. I'll leave you with this. Resilience is a journey and we're in this together. Farewell for now, Bouncer Backers, and I look forward to seeing you all next week for more like this.